Listening to Red Flag Radio, we record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast and uh, we're careering towards the end of 2020 and thanking all of our um, supporters on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast. We just celebrated a year of Red Flag Radio. If you haven't listened to our anniversary special yet, it's the episode before this one. I highly recommend it. Although, you know, we're talking about why you need to be a revolutionary socialist in 2020, and that might seem like it's pretty bleak days, but actually it's a really inspiring discussion. So if you haven't listened to that one, um, have a look back through the episodes, and there's uh, 50 episodes now. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of content. If you're enjoying, if you enjoy this one, you'll probably enjoy some of the others as well. And we really encourage people to share on social media, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast to write a review um, on iTunes or Spotify or wherever so other people can um, find us into 2021 would be fantastic. Uh, so Liam, as always, is with me here, um, not in the same room. We haven't been in the same room for a while, have we, Liam? I we might ha- That might happen again. That would be nice. Day. Come back to your house. Um, yeah. And today we're talking about um, – public housing, and we've got a couple of really fantastic uh, guests on the show, Louisa and Steph, who are both uh, long-term public housing activists. And I say that first because I think it's probably the most important part of what they um, understand around these issues. Uh, But they're also, of course, unionists. Um, Anyone who's a worker who comes on this show basically has to be an active member of their trade union. Um, And they also work in the community legal sector and – both of them have worked in the past for uh, the Tenants Union in Victoria, and so they know a lot about this stuff. So that's good. Because basically, I mean, I, like many other people, heard the announcement from the Labor Party government here in Victoria about the biggest ever spend on what they say is public housing uh, $5.3 billion to build 12,000 public housing homes. And this seemed like something on the surface that was like a pretty big deal for people who've been campaigning around public housing. And so I wanted to interrogate it a bit more um, beneath the surface, and that's kind of what we like to do on this podcast. Uh, so I wanted to get their take on the announcement to see if it's as good as it seems to see what the issues are and to also just kind of understand a bit better and um, what's going on in the housing sector in Victoria but that has implications for the whole of Australia. So, Steph, I'll start with you and welcome to Red Flag Radio. Um, Thanks. What, what was your first response when you heard this announcement? And it was kind of – it was front page of the papers and lead story on the ABC, so it was a big deal. I mean, there, there'd been murmurings for some time that there was, there was something big coming, that the government had something big um, to announce. And, you know, once it was uh, finally announced, my first thought really was, um, you know, here we go, this is it. It, it is a really um, substantial announcement. Um, you know, I see it as big in a sort of different way to what the government would, um, in that it's a really clear um, and very substantial step away 
from the idea that the government actually has the responsibility to provide housing um, for anyone who, who can't make it in the cut and thrust of the market. For a long time in Victoria, um, you know, housing policy has been characterised more by inaction, so more by the government just letting um, its housing stock sit and rot. rot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been characterised by, you know, much smaller scale versions of what they're proposing here. So, um, you know, little bits and pieces, um, you know, giving money to developers, um, transferring 500, 1,000 public housing units here and there to other providers. But what this announcement really is, um, is absolutely drawing a line in the sand from the government's perspective between, you know, what they would say is the past, which is the government providing housing, um, you know, and what's next, which is something quite different to that. Mm. And it is, you know, it is all framed in a whole lot of um, spin. So, like, if we look, Louisa, at, um, and welcome back to Red Flag Radio, um, what's beneath the surface then? Like, when you look at, start looking at the details of this, and it's a lot of money, where, where does this money end up? What's the actual kind of numbers of, you know, what's going to get built or where's, yeah, well, where's I mean- money getting spent? Yeah. I guess of the of the five point three billion, which is a huge amount of money, um, when it comes down to it, there's only I think five hundred and thirty two million that's been um, earmarked for the government actually building new homes itself, um, and that's on land where they've recently demolished public housing homes that previously existed there. Um, so they're only building fifty four new houses out of this announcement of five point three billion dollars. The vast majority of the money is going essentially to private developers. They're going to be getting $2.14 billion for including a certain portion of um, social housing in their shoddy development. Um, so that's what's known around the world as inclusionary zoning, and that's something that the government could have just required um, by imposing legislation on them saying you have to do this, but they're just going to gift them that money um, as an incentive to do that. Uh, and then there's also around um, $1.38 billion in capital grants for community housing providers to um, build social housing. So the government said, you know, it's 12,000 new homes, but um, 2,700 of that is for affordable housing, which is not actually um, affordable for most people. Um, so only 9,300 will be social housing homes. Um, and these are targets. So we don't even know if they're actually going to be able to, um, you know, whether they're going to reach these targets at all. Um, and again, they're not the vast majority. All but 54 will be not publicly owned and managed. Yeah, it's crazy. So it's like they're knocking down public housing to build more public housing, but um, with a net result of 54 new, but potentially smaller. That's one of the issues, right? Yeah. yeah and then. Is- the money that goes to private developers, so they can spend that government money, build a bunch of commercial properties, sell them on the market, and have a small portion that is then social housing. Now, this is where we come to the language of the whole issue. And Steph, I was hoping you could kind of give us a breakdown because these terms just seem to be used interchangeably, public, community, social, social is this umbrella term, like what actually should we be understanding about the difference between these types of housing? 
Yeah, I mean, understanding this is really the key to understanding anything about what's happening in housing at the moment. Most people are familiar with the term public housing and they're also familiar with the term social housing um, because, as you point out, they're used interchangeably by the government. It, it, it was a pretty deliberate strategy uh, to do this, though. The government will use the term um, social housing when, in fact, they're more often referring to community housing. So the point of creating this term of uh, social housing, which is designed to bring public housing and community housing uh, into the one category, is so that the government can talk about, you know, a social housing development. People read that as a public housing development. I mean, and this was evidenced in this um, proposal the day after it was announced, the sort of, um, you know, the actual headlines were public housing blitz, you know, reported in the mainstream media, which has, you know, full-time journalists whose job it is to um, figure out and understand these things, were reporting this, which is, you know, predominantly um, a handout to community housing providers and private developers were reporting this as a public housing blitz. And that's because the sort of uh, clarity around the term um, public and social housing has really been deliberately muddied. So public housing is housing that is owned and managed by the government. So it means the government is the, the entity that holds the title and they are your landlord if you live in their property. Community housing is housing that is sometimes owned by the government but managed by a small uh, not-for-profit not for profit entity. Sometimes the, the not-for-profit entities will um, also own the home. Often that's by virtue of the government having transferred the title to them. Um, community housing providers can be really small. They can range from, you know, a, a small entity that might manage, you know, 12 houses right up to really substantial organisations that will manage thousands and thousands uh, of properties across the state. But the, the important thing to understand about community housing is that it's while it's not for profit at the moment, that's a requirement to, to receive government funding to provide housing, they're private entities. So they're governed by their own boards. They're free by and large to run their entities as they see fit, including um, deciding how they manage the houses they offer, what sort of policies are on offer to tenants. So it's quite distinct to public housing. Uh, which has a very clear and, uh, you know, readily apparent sort of management system. You can Google it right now and look up the, the housing manual and see what your rights would be if you lived in public housing. So then so, so then from a tenancy point of view, I guess, because this is the big difference, like what are the key issues there around if your, your rights and protections for public housing managed and owned by the government compared to these community housing associations? Well, there's, a, there's a, a bunch of really important, uh, you know, material differences, but it's also worth pointing out that that question of transparency is really important. So, as I say right now, anyone in Victoria could Google the uh, Director of Housing um, <coughs> Housing Management Manual and, and pull up the PDF and see right now what your rights would be if you lived in public housing. Whereas if you live in community housing, there's a good chance uh, you don't know what your housing provider's policies are. If you asked for them, you wouldn't get them. Um, and they can change um, really at the will of the of the provider. And when you, you're looking at a sector that has, you know, more than 100 providers, uh, it's a really difficult proposition for somebody to figure out what their rights might be. But speaking broadly, um, if you live in public housing, you pay 25% of your rent, uh, your income in rent, and that's, that's really um, quite firm. It's, it's one of the, um, you know, better things about public housing. If you live in community housing, 
you'll be paying 30% of your income in your sort of base rent. And in a lot of instances, you'll pay an amount on top of that, uh, which is called a service charge. And it's uh, ostensibly for all the things that you would otherwise think should be included in your rent payment. So things like, uh, you know, taking out the bins, or if you live in a in a, an apartment that needs some gardening done, you know, um, doing the gardening and things like that. It can easily mean that if you live in community housing, you could be paying 40, 50% of your income um, on your rent. So a really massive difference mm. to people. Um, for someone who's on the DSP, for instance, just that difference between 25 and 30% um, is more than $20 a week. And over the course of a year, that's more than $7,000 a year. And when we know, you know, that already Centrelink payments are vastly below the poverty line. The question of $20 a week mm. is really massive for these people. Um, the, some of the other issues are that the, your, your rent payments will, will move really consistently with your income in public housing. So if you lose income, if you lose your job, you let the department know and they're mandated to reduce your, your rent um, pretty much straight away. It's, it's quite different with community housing. So in a lot of cases, community housing providers don't even have clear policies around what happens if your income is reduced. So obviously, um, people can see themselves falling into rental arrears quite easily in community housing if their circumstances change. And overall, community housing is uh, much less secure. So it's much easier to be evicted uh, if you're a community housing tenant. And those are really the, the sort of key, key issues of concern. Um, for people who, who, who can't make it in the private market. That's the reason that they're in public housing. So the questions of how much are you paying and how secure is your tenancy, though your position is wildly different if you live in community housing than if you do in public housing. And then there's different, you know, bits and pieces on top of that that matter to, to different people depending on their circumstances. So there's issues around disability modifications, much better if you're in public housing. Uh, temporary absence policies, you know, if, if you, um, spend time in prison, if you're required to spend some time in a, in a refuge, um, your rent will be reduced to almost nil if you live in public housing, uh, not the case in community housing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you could go on for, for hours about the differences, but those are some of the sort of, you know, headline issues. And my understanding is as well that community housing providers can pick and choose the tenants more, whereas public housing, you have to, you, they take everyone on the list. Yeah, right? so com yeah. community housing providers are only required to take 75% of the tenants from the uh, the list, the joint list for community housing and public housing. Um, and within that, you know, the policies are sort of um, worded such that there's there's potentially even more flexibility in there for community housing providers to categorise people as, you know, quote, unquote, vulnerable um, that potentially, uh, you know, do in fact have higher incomes than, than people who are ending up in public housing. So there's there is there's issues there. So, Louisa, if we look at, at this package again, you know, and the amounts of money being spent um, that are going into the private sector and into these community housing organisations, I mean, it's not really the, the end outcome of this whole um, announcement is not actually to do with people need houses, what can we do to give them a decent place to live? I mean, it's a it's a stimulus for the economy in a covid -y way. Um, you know, the, the, there's construction work happening, there's business that gets money, if that is indeed, you know, much of an economic stimulus. But, like, it's really, it must strike people, and I'm sure it strikes 
listeners to this podcast that like, why is it that the government has let public housing go to shit so badly? And then now they want to spend 5.3 billion, but they don't actually care about decent housing for people. I think the government's approach really is um, one that's consistent with what other state governments in Australia are doing and governments around the world, really, in that they don't actually want to spend on things like housing unless they can get a return on that spending. So from from their perspective, this is, um, I think, uh, a building stimulus package rather than anything else. Um, of course, they want people housed, um, but the fact of the matter is it's not profitable to manage housing for people on low incomes in an ongoing way. So this money is about an immediate investment in building, uh, which they think is going to find its way back into the economy. It's not about um, an ongoing investment into public assets um, and, you know, which would be of greater benefit to, to tenants and taxpayers alike. Um, but instead, it's about um, trying to get the private market to take over this public responsibility. And when it comes to housing the poor, public-private partnerships are just not going to work. What they're going to lead to is substandard housing where the community housing providers don't have the money to properly maintain the tenancies and tenants are going to lose out. Without that security of tenure that they would get in public housing, um, people are just not going to be able to raise their children in kind of, you know, safe, secure, long-term housing the way they have in the past in public housing. And this is reflected also in the approach of the government um, to the, the selling off of the inner city sites um, that have previously um, had a lot of public housing on them. You know, they see this land as really lucrative and aren't of the view that those people should be living there. They don't deserve to live um, in these great inner city places like West Garth and North Melbourne. You know, and so they're selling off this land, moving people out of um, the inner city and breaking up what are largely migrant communities, dispersing them into far-flung places, um, you know, and really, I think, um, destroying communities as a result. Mm. And I think that community, that element of community and, you know, the inner-city mix of people that has happened historically because of public housing is part of what is being disappeared in all of this. It's one of those, you know, capitalism comes up with the, the worst, euphemisms that are yeah just um very like 1984-ish public housing renewal is one of them i think which sounds on paper like it's going to be this good thing but it's the same around the world that it just has meant the privatization sort of neoliberalization of everything around housing and that's a form of ethnic cleansing i think you know um that's been part of what researchers have said has happened in europe as a result of this these kind of things and it's quite clear if you look at the people who are more likely to have big, bigger families, um, people from migrant backgrounds, that the new public housing that's built um, is not big enough to house them. So they just are tough luck. Uh, so, yeah, the, I think that's a useful point. Um, and so, and I, yeah, just one more thing, uh, Rob. You know, like it's not uncommon to come across um, tenants in my work who have been living in the same flat for 30 years. You know, they raised their children there. They have a real connection to the place. I mean, community housing providers are sometimes only a few years old themselves and whether they'll still exist as entities in a few years remains to be seen. So there's this real transience to, to the management that comes from community housing and it means that what we lose is this kind of 
flexibility for people to actually live in one place and, and you know, um, form those connections with the people around them and the place, which is, I think, something that's really hard to measure that's really significant, has a really significant impact on people's lives. Yeah. Well, can I jump in there? Because I was I was um, just reading something about the Millers Point development in um, Sydney, which is uh, a community that is in um, – I'm not super familiar with Sydney, but I understand that it's quite near um, a quite desirable part, part of the city um, and it was the subject of a really important campaign a couple of years ago because the government wanted to, um, you know, as they've done in Victoria, shift people out of those, um, you know, well-located houses – and sell them off um, to people that, you know, are, are more deserving to live in the nice parts of Sydney because they can pay $2 million to do so. And I was reading a, a Domain article which was talking about one of the auctions to, to sell one of the um, houses and the real estate agent was, you know, totally um, uh, unconcerned about the appearance of this but was um, talking about how they expect that Millers Point will become one of um, Sydney's premier communities. This is, you know, uh, something, a community that was really built on, on struggle, a community that was fought for and a community that really, um, you know, fought for their right to stay there um, and, and they're sort of, you know, pushed out and washed out now to the far-flung, um, you know, rings of Sydney. Um, rich people who can now afford to pay 2 or $3 million for, for their houses are moving in um, and the sort of real estate agents are confident that this will be, um, you know, a really premier community. It's just, you know, it's outrageous. Yeah. And it's really indicative of, of the sort of dynamic of um, why should, you know, in, in Victoria, for instance, why should public housing tenants live in Northcote along the creek? That's a highly desirable spot now. Mm. Um, they should be out of there and it's it's really the sort of, you know, case um, across the country. Mm. Um, yeah, so is Victoria like a standout the worst or like how, yeah, yeah. can you say a bit more about how it compares, Steph? Well, it, it's um, standout the worst in terms of the overall proportion of um, public housing. So it, it wins the um, gold medal award for having the lowest proportion of public housing <laughs> Um, to to all other forms of housing, and it, I mean it wasn't always the case. So the the proportions in in Victoria were you know roughly similar to um, other states and and territories uh, up until you know sort of ten twenty years ago. But the the issue obviously is that um, you know populations grow, and Victoria's population has grown quite substantially. And Victoria, uh, you know, and particularly Melbourne, has been the site of a, of a massive. Um, residential construction boom for for a long time, and a lot of people um, have become extremely um, rich off that. But as the population has grown, uh, housing has the public housing sector has not um, kept up. So it's not um, there's been no you know um, similar investment in public housing. So the, those proportions necessarily mm. um, retract quite substantially. So I think in the last, um, in the 10 years from 2006 to 2016, the population of Victoria grew um, by 1 million people. But the actual number of public housing um, units that Victoria held retracted over that period. So there were 500 fewer public housing homes over that period. So while mass building, mass construction, um, there were less public housing units um, at the end of that period. And then obviously as a proportion of all the housing, which is growing, um, it's really shrunk. So Victoria absolutely wins that award. Um, but on the question of the sort of overall dynamic, uh, Victoria is just absolutely uh, middle of the pack. So what Victoria is doing here, um, you know, the Labor government's argu arguably doing 
you know, a better job of it than some governments. Um, they've sort of got the progressive veneer and are able to sort of push things perhaps a bit harder and faster than some other governments across the country. But as you point out, the notion of, you know, sell-off, uh, renewal, rejuvenation uh, is is pretty much the standard um, strategy for um, public housing across the country. In in South Australia, the, the actual entity that, that manages what happens with um, public housing is in fact called Renewal SA and they've overseen you know, a really massive transfer of um, public housing to, to community housing. Uh, in Western Australia, they're, they're in a similar position to Victoria, so less public housing homes now than they had five years ago. Um, and, of course, New South Wales. The, the New South Wales example is really um, notable for an important reason in that people have, have actually fought back in New South Wales. So it stands out as a really important site for, um, you know, activists across, across the country uh, to, to sort of understand and watch because the, the government there has attacked a number of really long-standing public housing communities and people, you know, have fought back. To date, nobody's um, sort of been able to stop any of the proposals, but certainly there was real struggle around Miller's Point. There was real struggle around the Sirius building, um, which was uh, um, sort of it was a it was a form of housing specifically built to accommodate people who were pushed out of of another sort of um, you know rejuvenation redevelopment process uh, earlier on in last century. It was a particular um, building built specifically for those people. But again, um, it had views of the, um, what are the important things in Sydney? Um, the, 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 bridge? the bridge, the bridge. Oh, okay, okay, right there. <laughs> and views of the bridge. Um, so uh, public housing tenants had no right to that and they'd been pushed out. And that, that's the plans for that to uh, be turned into, um, you know, extreme luxury apartments um, have just been released. It's frustrating with the Labor government in all of this in Victoria because Dan Andrews just has all of this progressive credibility and it's actually not deserved in this sector. Um, but, yeah, without people understanding kind of behind the scenes of any of this and the longer-term trends that you're outlining here around basically as much as possible transferring the responsibility of housing um, out of the government. So it's a, it's a privatisation process. It's just one that's been managed in terms of the messaging and everything quite successfully so that people think that it is still the government is providing for people and they're not. I mean, the pandemic is an interesting case when we think about the fact that um, it was sort of necessary in a health way to take people who particularly were living on the streets in the CBD in Melbourne and in other places as well um, and give them a roof over their head. So, Louisa, what does that tell us? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but, like, the fact that this has been happening and it might be about to end and we don't know what's happening, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Have you had some experience yeah. with that? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it just shows that where there's a political will, they can certainly get people off the streets. I mean, um, to, to find people housing is not rocket science. But, uh, again, you know, if this is not a satisfactory fix, it's a temporary solution to put the homeless in hotels, you know, and you've got some people who've been, like, living with their pets in a motel room for more than six months um, and who really want 
somewhere stable to live permanently and they're, they're not going to get that out of this. Um, and then you've got situations like um, the people who are living in the, the flats that went into hard lockdown, like it became clear that that was going to be embarrassing um, for the government when we started to kind of get out that you had, you know, eight people living in a two-bedroom flat and so they started to move people from those properties into private rentals um, and, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen once tenants like the, the leases with those private landlords expire in two years. What are they going to do with those people then? So, you know, like they can act quickly when they want to and they, they can house people, but without any um, commitment to recurrent investment in managing public housing, these are all just such short-term solutions that are actually unsatisfactory. They don't create people's homes. They just move people out of sight for a short while. Mm. So the waiting list is still um, massively long and probably under-reports the actual numbers. You know, 100,000 people um, with 56,000 applications on the housing register, half considered urgent or vulnerable. Um, what what do you think, Steph, the future is for all of these people on the waiting list? And more, presumably, you know, we're, we're only at the beginning of the crisis caused by COVID and um, exacerbated, you know, by the economic situation internationally and in Australia. Like, surely there's going to be more and more people as well looking for housing support. Um, what does that future look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the next little period is is um, that there's, you know, big question marks about what that looks like for, for tenants. At the moment in Victoria and, you know, it's similar in other states, there are temporary measures in place to, um, you know, slow the uh, eviction rate um, to prevent sort of, you know, mass, mass evictions and mass homelessness at, at the peak of the pandemic. And in Victoria, the government has, uh, you know, made much of its eviction ban um, and as, you know, people who work in the sector, we know that there is an, ev an eviction ban. People are certainly still being evicted. But the one thing um, that is, is more difficult for people to do at the moment is to evict their tenants if they're in rent arrears because of COVID. So that is, that's a real sort of stopgap there. Um, people who can't pay their rent at the moment um, because of COVID cannot be evicted. That, that changes in March. Um, and a lot of people who haven't been able to pay their rent for this period um, are going to, you know, face March. Um, there'll no longer be anything preventing their landlords evicting them. They're going to have massive um, rent arrears debts. And so we don't really know what that's going to look like. That could be thousands more people um, requiring, as, as you say, housing support, and there's really nothing for them. There's absolutely nothing for them at the moment. There's nothing for them in this announcement. Um, even if the, the houses um, proposed in this announcement were public housing, there'd absolutely be nothing for them by March. So, you know, that question is really, um, you know, is really a worry, I think, for, for tenants in, in Victoria. And then more broadly, I think this announcement, as I said at the start, is really a substantial um, step down the, the path away from, um, you know, a secure and growing um, public housing sector. So the future of public housing, if, if the current trajectory continues without a pushback from our side, it's, it's pretty bleak. Um, at the moment... We're really in the infancy of, of, of this shift. So community housing in Australia is, is pretty young. It's much more established in other parts of um, the world. People who are familiar with the you know, housing sector in the UK will know a bit about what it looks like when community housing or, you know, as they're called, their housing associations um, get more of a foothold 
and are more entrenched. But at the moment, we're really still in what you'd call probably the honeymoon phase where, you know, community housing providers are arguably trying to put their best foot forward. Um, but as, as we move further down that path um, and the model becomes entrenched, as people would know, in all forms of privatisation, once it's in and a lock and the government's out of that space, it becomes really hard for people to imagine uh, going back to anything that, that wasn't a private model. And the struggle to sort of push back and, and have a wholesale reversal is much more difficult than fighting it, you know, at, at the point that it's being uh, introduced. And then, uh, you know, I would say that the, the issue of public housing really isn't just a question of people who, who need um, housing. So it's not just the question of, uh, you know, fighting for people who need, um, you know, secure government housing, but the question of whether or not the government gets away with just one more privatisation is really a question for anyone who, you know, believes in a world that, that's different to what we have now. So I see the question of public housing as just being the sort of next battleground in an argument that, you know, the private sector and the market doesn't have a right to be in every sphere of our lives. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, being socialists, as we all are on this podcast, it does, yeah, connect with all of those broader issues around, you know, the kind of just expectations or the belief that we have as socialists that there is a world that's possible to be created where, you know, you don't, you, you can have a house to live in and you can not have to worry about um, being evicted and being kicked out and like it just it's one of those uh, add to the m- massively long list of things that make no sense um, from a human being perspective about capitalism I guess Louisa I mean you've worked in the sector and you've had a lot you've worked with a lot of clients who have borne the brunt of uh, these things and um having to navigate trying to find somewhere to live and doing that in very in extreme in situations of extreme poverty you know people who've survived abuse like all sorts of um pretty horrific situations i mean how does that make you want to be more determinedly a socialist all of this well it just says so much about what's wrong with the system doesn't it like the last 10 years of well or longer of politics in this country um, you know, the discussions around housing have been around um, the housing market. You know, what, what's the price of housing? Oh, great, it's going up in all the cities. But we're not actually talking about housing in terms of, um, you know, the impact it has on people's lives. When actually housing, having a safe and secure home is so fundamental to how people can participate in society. Not having to move every other year so your kids don't have to uproot and leave the friends that they've made at school to go to a new school. You know, not, not having to, to deal with mould that makes you sick because you're breathing it in every day. Like these things are just um, really should be first and foremost. Yet we live in a society that's driven by um, profit that saturates everything. And so, you know, the, the priority of putting the economy over people uh, dominates. And in a country as wealthy as Australia, the fact that that's the case says so much about the priorities of the system and why we need to challenge it. Mm-hmm. Steph, any final thoughts from you? Um, no, I think that um, the, I mean, other than to say that the, um, you know, potential positive to come out of the announcement is that the, 
it could well be that this shift that we're talking about becomes more more apparent to to more people, and I think that there's an opportunity for um, you know struggle and you know when you're particularly talking about displacing communities, um, there's there's a real opportunity for people who you know are in those communities to join um, you know with activists and socialists to to fight to hold on to those things. So you know I, I certainly don't want to um, paint a picture of saying that there, there's no hope. Because I think that there, there's certainly been examples in our recent history in Australia of, of people fighting back, and I think we, you know, we have to have hope that um, on, on this question, you know, we can push back and we can win. Yeah, and there's and there's hope from more historic struggles as well. I was thinking about, you know, that kind of anti-eviction campaigns that happened during the Great Depression here and in, in the US, and it's sort of we're facing that kind of potential situation in the US. There's the whole phenomenon of eviction pyres out the front of people's houses where the, all their stuff has just been chucked out and it's like, you know, there's thousands of them all around the United States. But what we've seen in the past is that people have organised to prevent that, like literally to go along and say, no, you're not being evicted, we're um, putting all your stuff back in your house and we're defending it. Um, and I think that there's every potential for hopefully a struggle like that, a campaign like that or something like that. Um, to be happening here in Australia in the future. So that's my note of hope uh, mm. to end on. Liam, were you going to add anything here? No, I was just agreeing with yeah. your note of hope. There. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll just say one other thing, which is that, that there is there's also um, there is hope for for the unions. So the unions did play, uh, you know, something of a role uh, in the the New South Wales struggle. So. Um, you know, there's in terms of the you know industrial might. Mm. The question of housing is not is not been sort of totally absent from from worker struggle. So that that's obviously what we would um, argue for and hope for. But and you know there is there is um, recent history to point to some some possibility of that. Yeah, that's a good idea for um, a follow up episode for this one. I reckon some of the historical struggles around housing would be really interesting. Yeah. So, um, so thank you. Steph and Louisa for your time. I know you're both very busy people. We're very lucky to have you on the podcast um, and good luck with your continued activism. Thank you. And um, thanks, Liam, again, Pleasure. for being on the dials. Uh, and I will say congratulations on your recent nuptials, which you're still hungover <laughs> from recording this, so now everyone knows. Uh, another person added to the Ward family or maybe the other way around. <laughs> Um, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>